0: Good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and as we begin, I just want to ask a question of you just to get you thinking. Have you ever been around a person that was a poor example to you? Think back in your childhood, maybe in the elementary years, that kid that would do the spit wads across the class and you would laugh and you'd get in trouble uh, with him. Or maybe it was your junior high years, you got involved with the wrong crowd. Uh, maybe it was high school, maybe it was college, that somehow there was some role model or a poor example that you allowed to sway your behavior or your character. I know I certainly sure did it at different stages of my life, but there's probably many examples. The scripture says, bad company corrupts good morals. And of course, even as being unconverted, if we have a certain inclination to a certain direction, and we're swayed from that, then we've fallen into following poor role models. For many of us, that meant a determination to indulge the flesh. And Peter says, "...for the time already past is sufficient for you for who have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality and lust." A.W. Tozer says until we believe that we are as bad as what God says we are, we can never believe that he will do for us what he says he will do. Right here is where popular religion breaks down. In other words, the idea that if we really believe that we are depraved and we have an inclination to evil, we have an inclination to wickedness, that God has provided a remedy for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And oftentimes what we hear in religion today is just morality or postmodern thought, God as character, as a moving target, and that type of thing. Well, in our text today, we're going to see the Apostle Paul calling the church at Philippi, the Philippians, to spiritual maturity, to live up to what you have been called to and to walk in that path. He sets before them two examples. He sets before them the example of himself, imitate me. And we know in other places in Scripture, what does he say? Imitate me so far as I have imitated Christ, right? And so, in other words, Christ is our ultimate role model and our ultimate target, but we know in this life we will never live a perfect life as Christ did. But Paul sets before them the example of himself when he encourages them to imitate me, but also enemies of the cross and he gives four specific characteristics of these enemies of the cross and so there you have it side by side you have the example of paul and you have the example of these uh, enemies of the cross i believe and i'm convinced after being a believer for more than half of my life now for 26 years that there are various stages of spiritual maturity and development would you agree with that Or do you think you're saved and it's kind of a flat line until you enter eternity? No, there's, I mean, the Bible talks about progressive sanctification, that we grow in holiness, that we grow in our understanding of who Christ is and what exactly He has come to do for us. We were having fellowship with a family from the church last night, and we were talking about the whole idea of as we grow in the Christian life, we learn more about who God is and more about who we are. And those two things combined together are vitally important and progressing in the Christian life. John Calvin, his classic work, *The Institutes of the Christian Religion*, actually begins with that very topic: the creature, creator, uh, creature and creator distinction, and developing that very thing of who God is and who man is. Just like a physical child uh, begins in the womb, and comes out at birth and is an infant and then a toddler and then a child and then a teen and then an adult and then a senior and then back to the dust. There's this progression and so too the Christian life. Uh, John writes about this in First John. Remember in chapter 2, the latter part where it talks about, I write to you children. I write to you young men. I write to you fathers. There's an expectation of maturity in the Christian life. We've been talking about this as elders, as we try to match people up for discipleship relationships and, and mentoring and, and multiplying and these kinds of things that you, you align, you sort of think of where people are at in that progression, and that's going to assist you with um, who, the, who would be discipling them. So let's read the text. So I'm going to read verses 12 to 21. I'm going to give you a sneak peek as to next week. Um, text and then also pick it up from where we were at last week so verse 12 not that i have already attained it or have already become perfect but i press on so that i may lay hold of that for which i was laid hold of by christ jesus brethren i do not regard myself as laying having laid hold of it yet but one thing i do forgetting what lies behind and Reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if, any, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living the same standard for which we have attained, Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have seen in us. For many walk, of whom I often have told you, and now I tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven." from which also we eagerly wait to Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You once again for the opportunity to worship You in this fashion, to be gathered together, in this place, Lord, and we give you thanks. Lord, we want to be good stewards with our time. And during this hour, O oh Lord, we, our desperate need is that we would hear from heaven, that we would hear from your word. And so, Lord, use the weak one who is speaking. Lord, you allow each one who is here to have receptive hearts unto your word, Lord, that we may grow In the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we may grow in Christ-like conformity, that we might be challenged even with what we hear today. And Lord, to the end, that we would be those who are more effective in the world and in our homes and training our children. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Paul begins the chapter with contrasting. Remember, he talks about the Judaizers. He calls them dogs, evil workers, false circumcision. He compares them to uh him and them his team that we are the true circumcision we worship god in spirit and we glory in christ that as we boast in christ then paul gets personal from verses 4 to 14 he uses the the first person singular i i i i i normally we'd say that's a bad thing to do if i ever get up here and babble about all my accomplishments Get somebody else up here. Um, But but for Paul, what he's doing is he's setting forth, if anybody can boast about all of their spiritual accomplishments, it's me. Look at verse 4. Although I myself may have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence, I far more. And he lists all of his pedigree, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness found blameless. Paul says, look, in my accounting system, I have all of these assets. I've got no liabilities whatsoever. Look at me. Then he says, but whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What Paul is saying is that all these things that I thought were assets, now that I've been transformed, I see that these are actually liabilities. And he takes the whole clump of them and throws them in the liability section. And the only asset he has is the finished work of Christ on his behalf. Look at verse 9. That I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so what Paul is saying here is that that those who have external religious activity um, and they put their confidence in that for a right standing before God, they are deceived. And and that everything they think is an asset will ultimately become a liability. Everything that they thought would be a flotation device in the ocean would become a lead weight to drag them down to the very bottom. And so Paul makes that very clear. And then notice in verse 12, well, verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, the entrance and the glorification. But notice what he says in 12 not that I've already attained this or have already become perfect, but I press on. That's my goal. I want the prize of Christ. That's the direction that I'm going. And so that gives us the context of where we're at here. He's determined to press on. To the prize. So today, Paul wants us to be mature, to think mature, to be spiritually mature, to live and to walk godly. And so my purpose is that we would do these very things, and that we would be very careful to do two things: not only choose the right role models that we might have, or or um, mentors, or whatever, but also that we would be positive role models. And you see how this is so practical for fathers and mothers, and even older siblings in the home. It's so practical for all of us. So we're going to look at this under three heads, and the first is verses 15 and 16. Let us have a mature attitude. Now, look at verse 12 again. We see this apparent contradiction. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. And look in verse 15. Let us therefore as many as are perfect... Now, you see the contradiction here? Not that I become perfect, but by the way, let us, us group over here who have become perfect. So let me explain this. Uh, it's an apparent contradiction, of course. It's only apparent. The idea of this word means a relative perfection, not absolute perfection. Um, it, obviously, he denied that in verse 12. So Paul includes himself with a group of spiritually mature. In James, this word is used for speaking of whole, every good and perfect gift that comes down from above. Complete, all sufficient gift that comes down from above. James also uses it in in those in in trials and, and when these various trials come for the purpose of our endurance that we might be perfect. That is mature is the idea of what this word means. So some Think that Paul is using an irony of words that the, the Judaizers they claim perfection. So let us whoever are perfect. I don't think that's the case. I think he's just using it positively. Those who are mature. Paul's already talked about this in chapter two and verse five, where he says, "Have this attitude in you, which was what also in Christ Jesus." So it is the mark of the mature person, the mature Christian. To recognize that such ultimate perfection that is our goal, our glorification, laying hold of Christ, seeing Him face to face, is unattainable in this life, and yet it is something that we strive for. That is a mark of being spiritually mature having a, may I say it, a Christ-centered ambition to know more of Him, to have fellowship with His sufferings, to know the power of His resurrection, that ambition is something that we should strive for. Because in the doing of all of that, we will understand more of the complete work that Christ has already accomplished for us on the cross. And that causes us to spiritually thrive as it were, to, to cause our, our hearts, our our spiritual hearts as it were, to beat out of our chest with passion to glorify Christ and to serve him and to be used of him in a lost and dying world. Do you have that mindset, brethren, today? Is that your supreme passion and goal in this life? Or is it pursuing the things of this world? Is it pursuing the 401k, the bigger house, the better car? All of these things are even grooming the perfect kids that never sin and walk like little robots. You can buy a robot nowadays if that's what you want. No! What is your goal? It's to know Christ and to know Him more fully. If you claim to be mature today, oh, I've been in Christ for 50 years, and you don't have this passion, there's something wrong. I'm using passion in a quantitative way, a heartfelt desire to run after Christ and to know him more fully, which causes us to have this eternal longing for heaven, it, that, that that's our passion, that's our pursuit. We we realize this life is just a bleep on the screen. Eternity's where we're going to spend forever. Paul writing to Corinth in chapter 14, verse 20, says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infant, infants, but in your thinking be mature. That is your frame of mind. Now, Paul could have used an imperative here. He uses what's called a hortatory subjunctive. It's it's a it's I let us like let us green lettuce. It, that's you just let us you know, but us right. Let us together have this attitude. Now, the word for attitude here. Let's talk about that. It's the idea. It's phroneo, which means the frame the the frame the frame of mind that you have. It can mean to have an opinion. Um, it can mean to, uh, uh, to judge or to form a thought. In other words, it's a frame of mind. He uses it twice in verse 15. We'll see it in verse 19. Uh, I think it's 11 or 12 times total in this, just this letter alone. He uses it a lot. Back in chapter 2 and verse 5, is that one example? Have this phroneo in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God. have this mindset of humility in that context as he had just admonished us earlier in chapter two, as was also in Christ Jesus okay verse fifteen b so I should say something about verse fifteen and sixteen it 's actually a very difficult uh, three short phrases to interpret because they they don't seem completely connected. They do now in my mind, but at first, uh, because let me just read it again, verse fifteen. Let us therefore, as many as ever, as are perfect, have this attitude. Secondly, if anything, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you. And then, however, let us keep living by the same standard. That middle phrase, if anything, if any of it, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you. That The word here for reveal is to reveal or disclose. It's a word that's used when Jesus says in Matthew 11, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and in intelligence and have revealed them unto infants. When Jesus makes that great confession at Caesarea Philippi, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. So it has the idea of a supernatural revelation to it in the word itself. And so uh, could Paul possibly be writing this late in the New Testament era and saying, oh, and if you have a different attitude and you don't desire to be perfect, God will give you a supernatural revelation. Well, we know God does not speak anymore through visions and dreams and voices and fleeces and god speaks through his word now and that's where we are to go i think the idea here what i've come to conclude after working with us for a while is it's similar to what paul prays in ephesians chapter one and we looked at this around new year's either the first, last sunday or last year or the first sunday but that prayer of paul where he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, but notice, in the knowledge of him. So why? So that we may understand more of God's glorious purposes in our lives and understand more of who Christ is and what he has done. So what this is, what this simply means is, I think that's similar here. Is that if you're not quite thinking maturely like this, but you're truly in Christ, and maybe your maybe your aim is a little off, God is going to bring you back by His sovereign plan, so that you will see that these things are true. And then in verse sixteen, however, let us. There it is again keep living by the same standard by the way keep living by the same standard all that is one word i'll unpack that in a minute to which we have attained so again you can see there's okay what have we attained paul says he has not attained so what have we attained and so we're to keep living by this standard well this sentence is very important as it concludes verses 12 to 16 which is one paragraph Uh, Verse 15, he says he wants the reader's attitude, and now he wants them to move forward with one accord. Christian maturity involves acting on the guidance of what you have already received. Uh, To put it another way, it's you think of all the, the preaching that you have heard, all of the teaching that you have heard, all of the mp3s cassette tapes cds eight tracks if you go back that far all of that that you've heard were to do something with that knowledge and to apply it the old adage that whoops it went in the right ear and flew right out of the left ear is not to be expected for the christian now i realize that we can't remember everything, right? And so some of it sort of does leak out, but we should be retaining some of it, right, over the course of time. And so all of this teaching that we have received, reading the Word, that's why it's so important to have a regular diet of private reading of the Word and taking your family through the Bible. It's important we're to act and to move forward collectively on what we have already seen, what we've already learned. Paul means simply that having come thus far, the thing to do is to go in the same path and to press on. And this, these types of encouragements are needed for Christians who feel like they're, they're kind of just stuck in the mundane and the monotony of, of, of another day and so forth. Now this word he uses, to live by the same standard, um, only occurs five times. And it, at the root of the word is a military term, which means to line up. It's, it's unrelated to the word submission, which means to line up under and so forth, but it's, it's a similar in that it's a military term. It means to line up, stand in a line, march in line, a call to battle orderliness. And so uh, let me Ill- try to illustrate it like this. Let's say we're, the U.S. Pentagon uh, declares an air mission of 20 F-18 fighter jets. Okay, they're all headed to the same location, whatever, the far side of wherever. Afghanistan, I guess we can just say. It's, it's 500 miles or whatever. They're get, they've got to get from point A to point B. They're to fly in formation. They're to make sure each, each individual jet must make sure that it's ready for the journey, that it has all the proper gear on board, the crop, proper fuel, and so fo- so forth. They all have to understand where the destination is. And then also, they, they have to make sure that they don't crash into the other ones so that they can actually get there. And each one of these things is essential to accomplishing the mission. Each jet must give up its own agenda or temptation to want to do a 360 or to go out of formation because it can be dangerous and deadly to the others. Well, so too the idea is that the other, all the other jets have a common purpose and that we are now united in there. And so as individual believers, we are moving forward towards a goal. The call to unity has occurred again and again. We're going to see it in two weeks in chapter 4, where he says, I urge Udiah and Sinateek to live in harmony in the Lord. And so that's been a primary theme here. And so when he says, moving on collectively, we saw it even back in chapter 1 in verse 27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, with one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's a reoccurring theme that he's bringing up here. And so he says here that we are to live by this same standard. And so we move forward from our attitude, our frame of mind, into practice, right? Moving forward. And then as we'll see, into even walking or living the Christian life. So secondly... Um, chapter verse 17 follow paul's example paul gives these two models to uh, follow himself and the enemies of the cross positive and righteous examples unrighteous and wicked examples and a sharp contrast is made where he tells us both the destiny and the character of those enemies of the cross in comparison to him so paul graciously sets before us a good model to follow now We should talk about this. Good and bad role models. I don't know if that terminology is used a whole lot anymore. You see it if you watch ESPN. Oh, he was a role model to so many. Such and such star, you know, and that kind of thing. You've got various sports players. You've got Hollywood entertainers. Uh, Just for example, sports. You've got Clayton Kershaw, pitcher for the Padres, who is a believer who does extensive orphan work in Zambia and is spreading the gospel, using the money. the, who knows how many millions that he's making, he's using it for good causes. Then you have Josh Gordon, who's the Browns, um, I think he's a wide receiver, but second or third year, did great his first year, but now now it's all getting to him, it's like constant drug problems, steroid issues, you have these other athletes who are shooting each other and you know killing their girlfriends, and just terrible things that take place, bad role models, right? You have the same thing in Hollywood. You, have, you go, walk down to the Toys R Us uh, aisle where the dolls are, and you've got dolls that look really plain and basic like they used to, and then you have these hyper-sexualized dolls that have the eyelashes this long and the big lips that are so thick and painted with lipstick, and it's like they're fully developed and they're supposed to be about five or something. And, and y- y- which one do you want to pick? What do you want your daughter to follow as a role model? You know, and that kind of thing. And so so there's those types of things that we need to think about. And then also, as I said also, we need to be sure that we are being good role models to those under our authority and under our sphere of influence. Now, this is not a new theme for Paul. He's mentioned this several times in the letter already. Obviously, he's given us the example of Christ in the middle of chapter 2, Remember, have this attitude which was also in Christ, and he lists all the things that Christ did. And then you have the example of Paul and Timothy, where he says, For you know of his proven worth, how he served with me for the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. And then Epaphroditus, who almost lost his life for the cause of the work of Christ. You have these positive examples being set forth, even the call to Christian living in the previous two verses that we just looked at, and now Paul's saying, follow my example. Brethren, join in following my example. Literally, imitate me together with and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have seen in us. He uses the word brethren here for the third time in this chapter, again, to get our attention, a warm, affectionate, humble term that he uses. And the word he uses here for join and following my example is is a word that only occurs here, and it literally means fellow imitator or a group of people imitating something. Paul, of course, has used this before, especially in Corinthians 4 and 11, um, of imitating him, and that's the root word, but this one has the idea of imitate me with one accord. Again, it's pushing and pressing The idea of this is something that we're doing together as a body of believers. The illustration of the F 18s, they must follow the one who is in the lead, right? If the one in the lead changes course by 20 degrees or one degree, the others have to follow, right? And so, too, we're following the example of Christ, first and foremost, the example of Paul set forth, and the context of the church, the example that the elders hopefully are setting forth, a good example. Now, speaking of example, actually, he uses this word in the NAS, it says pattern according to the pattern you have in us. I want to read the ESV on this verse because I actually like it tremendously better, um, which is not always true. (laughs) But in verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The word for example is, It's related to the root of if you if you smack something really hard and left an indentation, like maybe the hood of a car with a baseball bat or something, and it left a dent. There was a a, an impression there. If you take a, a stamp on melted wax and you put a stamp on it, the impression is there. And that's the idea of this word tupos in the original. Uh, it's, it's the idea of, of, of leaving a mark. It's the words that are used of the nails of the risen Christ, the, the holes of the nails of the hands of the risen Christ. And so what Paul is saying here is follow this example and to leave an impression. He uses it speaking to Timothy, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech and conduct. Love and faith and purity, show yourself a what? A tupos, an example, to all those who believe. Show yourself to be an example. So imitating Paul is not some mindless activity where it's kind of, no, it involves a change of attitude and a change of behavior. So you see, we progressed in verse 15 to having the right framework of the mind, the right attitude, To in, in verse 16, moving forward in the right living and behavior and then verse 17 the actual walking walking this out and living it out and this is why discipleship is so important you know the, the idea of saying well i'd love to have somebody disciple me if only he wasn't a sinner or if only he was perfect you say well first of all it doesn't exist but secondly practically that's not going to be very helpful Part of discipleship is seeing how you deal with disappointment, how you deal with sin, how you repent and go back to being restored, because those are real things that happen in the Christian life. And so in discipleship, we want godly examples that are before us who are honest and transparent so that we can learn, how do we, when we stumble and fall, how can I be to be restored? Does that make sense? I hope so. And then this idea of um, in the text to observe, that's the, actually the central exhortation to observe, to look at, to, to focus upon. Um, it's used in Romans 16 uh, in a sense of watch out to avoid such things, but here it's watch in order that you may follow. And so he says, join in following my example and observe those other brethren who are walking right according to to the pattern that you have seen in us, to the example that you have seen in us. And so follow godly examples. Walk in this manner. With singleness of purpose, full of concentration, focusing on the goal. Actually, the word uh, is related here. This, uh, to what we attained is to the goal of the prize. It's related to that. So we're to press on. So a mature attitude, Follow the right example. And lastly, avoid models who are enemies of the cross. Verse 18 and 19. Let's read it again. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. I'll come back to verse 19. Paul is greatly concerned about this wicked influence of these poor examples. They were completely opposed To the positive example that paul is calling them to follow to put it another way the enemies of the cross of christ for the antithesis of paul's godly examples of him and timothy and silas and his other companions paul says that i've given this warning many times of whom i have often told you i've warned you about these men i've warned you about these enemies of the cross And notice that he's filled with emotion as he makes this emotional appeal. For many walk. By the way, play on words. Verse 17, observe those who walk according to the pattern. That is, it's peripateo. It's actually how we live our Christian lives figuratively. Literally means walk. But then he says in verse 18, For many walk and live in such a way that's contrary to the cross. He says, I've often told you, and notice this. And now tell you, even weeping. This is the only time in Paul's letters that we have a reference to him currently weeping as he's penning the letter. Because his heart is broken. He, he understands their, their end is destruction, which we will say in a moment. And so deep emotion fills Paul. As Paul has expressed this many times because of his great love for this church, the close connection. They were there when nobody else was there for him. This word for weeping means an expression, often that was loud with sorrow. For example, in Mark 5, when they came uh, to the house of the synagogue official, they saw the commotion, and the people were loudly weeping and wailing. That's the word that's used. It's not always loud, but the woman in Luke 7, who who was a sinner from the city, probably a prostitute, comes with an alabaster or vial, Breaks it, uh, falls to his feet, anoints his feet, and weeping, she began to wet her feet with his tears. So Paul is broken over this. He is, he's, he's, he's emotional as he's pinning this. For many of whom I've often told you are enemies of the cross of Christ. Who were these enemies? Well, some say, well, they must be those who are outside of the church who oppose the church. Well, I don't think so. I, they, I, I think these are professing Christians that Paul is speaking of. The key word that he uses is this "walking." That many profess to walk. They they walk like Christians, sort of outwardly. But um, and, and so I think that's one of the things. But and it could be a reference back to the Judaizers. I was just back in the beginning of chapter three, but more likely to Gentiles who were recent converts who indulged the flesh who would not really completely come to Christ, who were outwardly, externally there, and somehow within the church. Paul would not be moved to tears by mere outsiders and persecutors that were outside of the church. He's broken because he knows that Christ died for the church. He shed his blood for the purity of the church. The elders have a responsibility to keep the church pure and to keep perversion and wickedness and harm outside of the church and so he's weeping the church is the bride of christ the church is for which christ shed his blood and we have occasionally impostors that get in abusers of christian liberty their behavior is what made them enemies And so whether they're Judaizers or whether they're Gentiles, it's one or the other extreme. Adding to the work of Christ on the cross or subtracting from the work of Christ on the cross. Adding to. you, Christ is fine, but you must have circumcision. Taking away this idea of self-denial and growing in holiness and the demands of discipleship. That I'll take Christ as as, um, Savior, but not as Lord. Really, an early example of the lordship controversy. So their lives were contrary to the principles of the cross. They did not execute themselves on the cross. As Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. And so the idea of dying to self, marks of discipleship, are essential. Well, let's look at verse 19. Whose end is destruction. Four phrases here that come Super fast. There's no finite verbs here. The subject and a predicate. It just fires away. Whose end is destruction. Whose God is their appetite. Whose glory is their shame. And who set their minds on earthly things. And then these words are often contrasted as well. First of all, he tells us the destiny of these enemies of the cross. What's their destiny? Whose end... Is destruction. Paul is referring to eternal destruction. Paul is referring to that place of weeping, gnashing of teeth, that place of utter torment that doesn't go on for one year or ten years or a hundred years. It goes on forever with absolutely no end in sight. It is, uh, the, it's the place where uh, Paul writes in Second Thessalonians 1 that these who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Very, very strong words. To name the name of Christ, but not to pursue holiness and living out the Christian life, will land you into hell. The word here for whose end, it's, it's related to the goal or, or the the end. And, and, and it, it has the idea of a conclusion or a termination. And so the end, uh, the, 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 the completion as it were, it leads you to eternal damnation. I wonder if there's any here today who needs to hear that warning. That if I'm just playing with Christianity, that ultimately it can land me into hell if I don't understand the demands of discipleship. He used this very word for destruction, which is a common word in the New Testament, back in chapter 1 and verse 28, when he, and speaking of those who are persecuting them, and in and, and no way be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation to you. It's the phrase that occurs in the familiar verse. For the word of the cross is foolishness to what? Those who are perishing. Those who are, being, who are going to destruction. 2 Corinthians 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to who? Those who are perishing and who reject the gospel. So first of all, we see their destiny. And then the next three phrases, we see their characteristics. And at first is we see what their God is. Whose God is their belly? Whose God is their belly? It's similar to Romans 16, 18. They do not serve Christ, but their own appetites. The word that's used here, it can, it means, it can mean literally belly or, or stomach. It's the idea of the viscera, the seat of one's emotions. When Jesus says that, that the one who comes to me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Innermost being is the idea of this word. And so it's, it's deep down, it's a viscera, it's used metaphorically like that. And so loosely, this could mean those who take an inordinate delight in the pleasures of the table, who are gluttons and so forth, um, or a bit more narrow, narrow, libertines who indulge in bodily desires, including all sensual delights. In other words, their lowercase g, God, is all of these things that propel them to sensual satisfaction. And we know, what does Moses say about those types of things? The passing pleasures of sin. Oh, yes, it might tickle your fancy for a short time now, but it's going to be gone and it will bite you. Those who indulge the bodily desires of those, these are those who say, if it feels good, do it. Hey, if I want to just quit my job and go on welfare and collect checks and sleep in and be a sluggard, why not? Just do it. Everybody else is doing it. Maybe it's those who want that third or fourth helping at dinner time and they didn't really need that. Um, who are uh, you know gluttons or, or those who have a sexual impulse and they turn on the computer and they visit the pornography site to indulge the sensual delights or the glutton who will buy another tub of ice cream and sit down or a bag of Doritos or whatever, or drug addicts who will, who will go to whatever lengths to, to satisfy that, that drug habit to stealing even their mother's last coins in a bank. The reality is, is that these types of pursuits to sensuality and all of this only leave you more hungry because they begin to never satisfy well, the third thing he says here is, their glory is their shame. The glory here is, is the idea of their boast. Their boast is in what is shameful, would be a paraphrase of this. It's, it's that which is considered shameful, especially sexual expressions. And Hosea says, the more they sinned against me, I will change their glory into shame. Shame. In other words, the people of God, as they would indulge the flesh and sin and all of that, I'm going to change what they boast in today into their shame tomorrow. When you have movies such as a movie that was released this weekend that glamorizes perversion and wickedness and things that are outside of the realm of what God has instructed things, it shows you where our culture is at There's also another way that this can be taken, and I'm undecided as to, it certainly fits this idea of sexual excess and all of that, and I think that's definitely part of it. If anything, that would be part of their God is their appetite, it could be placed up there. But there's also speaks in regards to the fate of those who are rejected at the last judgment. What do I mean by that? Those who think they're okay, right? But they die and then at the great white throne judgment, they hear the sentence to eternal destruction. Suddenly, all of their sin comes back to them like a vivid, you know, Elbranis, whatever the newest TV is, crystal clear, bright colors, you know, however many DPs, DPIs, crystal clear of all their sins. And suddenly the shame that they feel is they're cast away. Into eternal direct, uh, destruction, and the idea is that this word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, almost always is used uh, to describe an experience with God's judgment. And so God's glory will be manifested in the judgment, and they will be covered with shame. And there are several examples: Isaiah 45, Psalm 34. Psalm seventy. So it could have both of those. Uh, the parallel: whose end is destruction, whose boast will become their shame in the last day. But then last, they, they set their mind on earthly things, and this is that word again for attitude, mindset. And, and so they set their mind. So their mindset is not focused towards what we said earlier, more of Christ and knowing more of Him and reaching the goal, but upon all those worldly things. Which is kind of all-encompassing, isn't it? And then, of course, this sets up. If Just look at the first phrase in verse 20. Who set their mind on earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven. You have the contrast of heaven and earth, and, and our citizenship being in heaven. And though focusing on earthly things... Uh, You can write down Romans 8 verses 5 and 6 and look at the idea of the the battle between the flesh and the spirit. I think it's similar on this verse, but I do want to conclude for the sake of time. So which role models are you following? What role models are before you? Um, What role model are you being to your children, to the co-workers that are under you, those of you in the military, the the young recruits that, that come in and and what kind of role model are you setting for them? Children, may I encourage you to seek after the right role models in your life, whether it's school or wherever this is, your, your peers, to, to seek after those who are godly, those who, 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 who want to please the Lord. Don't be caught up in following the role wrong models and letting that drag you down. And then if you're outside of Christ, come to Him today. Experience what true freedom is. He he died on the cross to pay for the sins of, of sinners that we might be set free. That the shackles of our sin that we felt like we were just being drug around, Satan dragging us around like with by a nose ring, leading us to one sin to the next when and we're completely powerless to resist that. Apart from the Holy Spirit of God, God has broken those chains. He's defeated the power of the devil, if we will but come to him. In First Corinthians six, he lists For we were all, and he lists all these wicked things, uh, adulterers, murderers, homosexuals, all this, and such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified in the Lord. John Calvin says repentance throws men downward, but faith raises them up again. Repentance is important because you must be broken for your sin. You must confess your sin. Repentance means do a 180 to turn away from your sin. And so, let me encourage you. Have you repented of your sins? Do you realize you will stand before this holy God and you will answer for everything that you have done? May I encourage you to flee to Christ because Christ died for sinners. That your plea at that bar of judgment will be the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness alone. I've done nothing but disgrace you. I've never lived a perfect life. I've never kept your law perfectly. Who will you follow? What will you fill your mind with? Having this attitude means how do we think? What do we allow into our mind? Are we careful with what we're listening to? What we're setting our eyes on? What's coming in through the eye gate, the ear gate? All of that affects the mind and how we think. This has all kinds of implications for your entertainment choices, so-called. And have you been desensitized? Are you able to still blush over some of the foulness that takes place today? Because I'll tell you what, there's things now that's just widely accepted that would be completely abhorred upon 30 years ago. Jeremiah, God speaking, were they ashamed because of the abomination that they have done? They were not even ashamed at all, and they did not even know how to blush. May we not be among them. So look to Christ for your only way of salvation. He's paid it all, just as the hymn says, and we need to look to Him. All to Him we owe. And then also... Look with the eyes of Christ. Christ is with us. He's our companion. The Spirit of Christ dwells within us. And so, if Christ was next to you, what type of activities would you engage in? Would you invite Him to see the movie that you plan on seeing next? Would you invite Him to watch the cable show that you may watch sometime this week? We need to see that we have to deny deny ourselves. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. And Lord, we pray that You would indeed continue to sanctify, continue to mature our thinking. Lord, we want to be those who are running that Christian race with fervor and single-mindedness and with determination all along with the help of your strength and your spirit, that we would reach that goal, that we would even now prize Christ as we run towards him, looking forward to that day of glorification. And Lord, may we be those who are given to self-denial and not having the character traits of those enemies of the cross. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for this letter to the Philippians. Be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.